double spins. Did Bitcoin just have a critical flaw? What the hell happened? Or is this basically nothing at all? I, Guy Swan, will explain exactly what happened and everything you need to know. Plus, my take and the follow-up to our last amazing read we covered by Alan Farrington. Wittgenstein's Money. This is a Guy's Take episode. Let's get into it. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and we've got a guy's take up. So today, and it's going to be a good one. We are responding to, or as a follow-up to Wittgenstein's Money by uh, Alan F32 on Twitter, Alan Farrington. Uh, just such a great piece. If you haven't listened to it yet, you got to go back uh, and, and do that. It's so good. It takes the framing of what would it look like if a new money was entering the sphere, like like rather than saying, oh, Bitcoin isn't money because it doesn't fit our semantic definitions of a money after it becomes a money, let's just assume one is emerging. What would that look like? And uh, it's just such a great piece, and I really want to dig into it. But then also, uh, just because it's been such a huge stink recently, and I'm sure everybody has heard about it, uh, there was a horrible double spend on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, and it's, <laughs> good Lord, uh, the state of journalism is uh, rather sad um, these days, even in the Bitcoin space. Luckily, a lot of people have busted this FUD, but uh, I just couldn't resist uh, giving my own take on it because I'm still hearing about it and still getting questions about it. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the double spend, what it is and how Bitcoin works. Because the misunderstanding here is literally in not understanding how Bitcoin works, it seems. Now, if you know all about it and you just want to hear the response to Wittgenstein's money, just jump to about 20 or 21 minute mark and uh, we get into that. Uh, but we're going to have a little Bitcoin lesson first. But real quick, before we get into it, uh, thank you to the Bitbox O2 from Shift Crypto. They are a sponsor of this show and they have an awesome hardware wallet for your Bitcoin savings. It is simple, it is secure, it is open source. It is the way that you hold your cold storage. Check them out at guyswan.com bitbox. And then our other wonderful sponsor, level.co, lvl.co. These guys have a full mobile banking services and no fee exchange so that you can buy and sell Bitcoin in the account. Uh, and uh, you can even use um, a debit card connected to this, direct deposit, ACH, or the whole, the whole shooting match in a Bitcoin-denominated bank account. That is level.co, guyswan.com slash level. Okay, so let's talk about some basics, some real, real basics of how Bitcoin works. So I uh, tweeted out um, just uh, earlier today, uh, you know, is anybody curious about the recent double spend? This is literally how Satoshi explained Bitcoin works in the white paper. Take note of those who cried wolf. So if you read an article in Cointelegraph, hint, hint, um, or, you know, any of the other publications that talked about how this was a critical flaw, a lot of them I noticed 
hinted at the fact, like they, they left themselves an opening of, is this a critical flaw? Did Bitcoin just break sort of thing? So if they ask it as a question, they can get around the fact that they're just spreading nonsense. Um, but uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, they are either A, incompetent because they don't understand how Bitcoin works, or they didn't actually dig into what this means, or dishonest, which I think a lot of them are just dishonest. It's really, God, it's great for clicking, you know? Like, what they want is clicks, and clicks mean bad news, disasters, crisis, and, you know, so business as usual maybe looks like a crisis one day. Uh, but uh, uh, before we get into the actual part of the white paper, I just want to explain what actually happened. So block 668, so 668,000, uh, or no, no, excuse me, 666,833, uh, there were two different blocks. One was published by Slushpool. One was published or mined by F2Pool, and they had different transactions in them. This is something that happens very regularly, uh, except the, the mild difference here was that it was a, apparently an intentional double spend. Someone specifically wanted to have one transaction spending an output in uh, slush pools and one spending the output in a different way in F2Pool. And this is the nature of an open network, right? There, there's no actual consensus on the mempool, on like the transactions that are going to be put in the next block. Like there's a lot of differences. I mean, there's a lot of uh, similarities. You know, we would expect most full nodes to have largely the same mempool, but it's not in any way the case. I mean, there's no way to verify or know. I mean, like I could uh, try to mine my own transaction without broadcasting it at all. Obviously, no one would have a clue what's in my mempool if I didn't tell everybody else about it. You know, this is just a network. Like, that's how information travels. You can't be 100% certain that every full node on the network has your transaction. You just broadcast it at, you know, best chance, essentially. Um, and it's an open network, so I can broadcast anything I want. I could, right now, broadcast a spend from the same output uh, to, like, I'm connected to, like, let's say 16 different nodes. I could broadcast a separate transaction to each one of those 16 nodes. I could double spend on my client, on my computer very easily. Um, and there's no way for anybody to stop that. Like, you can't, it's not a regulatable thing. That's just how the network works. You can just broadcast whatever information you want that's valid. If it's valid, uh, that node will check it and then send it on. Uh, and it's very likely that um, multiple pools, different pools, get a different version of the transaction. That's why there is proof of work. That's the design of Bitcoin. That is how Bitcoin decides between one and the other is the longest chain. Um, so on block, again, 666,833, F2Pool got one transaction um, that was, or actually I think it was Slushpool that got the one spending $21, and then F2Pool was the one that spent um, a smaller amount out of that same address and the rest, like, I think returned to them. I think it was looking like a change address or something like that. Uh, but of course you can't actually, I couldn't actually look at that transaction now because it's no longer, it's no longer there because there was only, you know, one block reorg. And now there's only, only one of the transactions in, uh, in the chain. Now that I think about it, I think I got that backwards. I think the $21 one was the was the one in the reorg, and the other one was, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. 
one, they were different and they were in separate blocks that got produced right around the exact same time. Now, real quick, what's a reorg? Uh, this is something that happens all the time. Um, uh, less frequently than it used to. Um, it used to be a really big deal. The better the bandwidth, the better the, um, uh, the lower the latency on the network, and uh, also the better the code, um, which uh, there's been tons of cleanup. In fact, it was really amazing to see from about the period of 2013 to 2016, one, even two block reorganizations weren't out of the ordinary. Um, and that's one of the things that like a lot of people said, oh, Bitcoin had hardly any development. There were no improvements. But if you look every single time a new client came out, reorgs continued to drop. There was actually a chart that would just show how frequently you had like a one or two block reorg. And that was one of the most amazing things about being during that time is seeing how much the code base was cleaned up and how much more efficient the actual network and this process was to see reorgs go from something that happened once a week uh, to almost not at all, to, to a chart that just basically had blank, except every handful of months there was one little reorg. Because at, at the end of the day, there is a time between somebody mining a, a block and uh, somebody else on the, you know, let's say the polar opposite side of the network receiving that block. And if that takes five seconds, there are many, many occasions in which somebody else mines a block within that same five seconds. And uh, if you get it, this is, this is where we get to just the way Bitcoin works, right? So this is straight out of the white paper, right? So this is the first document ever released about Bitcoin. This is fundamental, fundamental to how Bitcoin works. And this is the exact mechanism by which Bitcoin sorts out double spins. It can do nothing at all to prevent someone from broadcasting two separate transactions. Like I just said, I could do it to ever I could do a different one for every one of the nodes that I'm connected to. So, quote, this is under the network section. So this is section five of the white paper. It says, nodes always consider the longest chain to be the correct one and will keep working on extending it. If two nodes broadcast different versions of the next block simultaneously, which is what we had, slush pool and F2 pool, some nodes may receive one or the other first. In that case, they work on the first one they received, but save the other branch in case it becomes longer. So what they do is they keep both blocks. Know, knowing fully well that there's a fork, the client just by default says, okay, one of them is not longer than the other. They are both at block 666833. Uh, so they keep them both. And then continued, the tie will be broken when the next proof of work is found and one branch becomes longer. The nodes that were working on the other branch will then switch to the longer one. The end. That's what happened. Somebody broadcast two separate transactions. Both of them made it into a block at just so happened right around the same time. And so uh, all the nodes did just as they were designed to do. And there was no double spend. There is not a double spend in the Bitcoin blockchain. This is something that is inherent to how Bitcoin works. This is why proof of work is the way to, to um, consolidate or prevent double spins. You can only do it by continuing to build blocks. That's the consensus mechanism. Now, I read an article on Cointelegraph and uh, there was a, a tweet by Ellie Ephraim and uh, BSV guy and, uh, and a response that he did to uh, what this thing is. And he says, 
uh, and this is this is something that you'll see a lot, um, particularly for shitcoiner from shitcoiners. Um, but uh, you'll see it just from just kind of ignorant people in general who don't quite understand the difference between a trust minimized or, or the the fact that proof of work is a trustless way to solve the double spend problem, and then the fact that they've got some trusted way to solve the double spend problem. And what they have done is they've just said that, uh, oh, because all of BSV miners, and this was basically the only response, he wrote like a little article, and the only actual addressing of the issue was that BSV uses, miners use first come, uh, first, uh, what was, what's it called? First scene, first scene uh, rule. Um, but understand that that is a client side rule. That is absolutely irrelevant. Like you can't enforce that by consensus rules. So like, it has nothing to do with the consensus rules. It's just a choice of the client. So saying, oh, all of our miners can be trusted to use first scene is totally irrelevant. That's not, that's got absolutely nothing. You're just trusting them. Like you could do that easily in all Bitcoin clients, but nobody wants to do that because it's arbitrary and it has nothing to do with actually solving the problem. As soon as you, I mean, anybody can manually change that. Um, that again, that is not a consensus rule thing. It is not a trust minimized or trustless method to have zero confirmation transactions. It's just a way to say like, oh, well, we know all of the miners and they said they're going to do it this way. So we don't have this problem. No, you do have this problem. You just think that putting in a layer of trust is the way to solve it. No, that's the centralized way to solve it, quote unquote. The decentralized way to solve it is the consensus rules, is the proof of work mechanism, which is exactly how Bitcoin works. And it is exactly how Satoshi uh, ex explicitly detailed out to solve the double, bent, double spend problem. What happened on block 666833 was not a double spend. It was an execution of exactly the method that Bitcoin uses to solve a double spend in exactly the way it is designed to solve the problem. And what's funny is that I also read an article, like I skimmed and or read like 15 articles about this, and most of them were crap. Um, and and that's, not, that's not entirely true. It's amazing how many are filled with facts, but the framing of what's going on is so, it just feels dishonest. But most were referencing the, um, the BitMEX research uh, fork monitor page. Um, which just keeps track of reorgs and potential double spins. And it was the one that recognized this double spend. And I will admit that if you don't know what you're looking at, um, uh, and which, you know, of course the journalists are 99.99% likely to not have a clue what they're looking at, and they're going to try to make their best guess as to what happened, um, is it said, yes, there is a double spend in block, yada, yada, um, on the Bitcoin chain. So it sounds like, oh my God, there is one UTXO, there is one address spending Bitcoin in two different locations on Bitcoin, uh, on the Bitcoin chain. That is not what happened. Um, even though the language kind of made it sound that way. So I'll at least give them the benefit of the doubt that they're just ignorant. But it's like, that's their job is to investigate and find out what actually happened. So I can't like... You, you know, I can only give so much leeway there. They literally don't do anything else. Like, that's their one job. Luckily, Bitcoin Magazine was quick to jump in with an article 
uh, dispelling the FUD and explaining what happened. And the other, the other thing I forgot to mention was that uh, multiple people, I think it was like a Bitcoin Cash guy, said that this is a fundamental problem with RBF. And it was funny, I was reading this in multiple articles that noted that there was no RBF detected. Um, so RBF is replaced by fees. So this is a just a general um, tool to rebroadcast a transaction from your client uh, that isn't confirmed. Uh, and there's a couple of different ways to um, replace a previous transaction or to bump a previous transaction. There's like a child pays for parent. There's replace by fee. Uh, and child pays for parent is like, let's say I send uh, from address A to address B and that won't get confirmed because my fee is too low. Well, then I can send from address B to address C with a big fee. And then the block that wants the B to C transaction needs to have the A to B transaction in it as well. So I can broadcast child transactions i can i can broadcast the next step transaction to essentially boost the previous one replace by fee is a more um uh, is a strict like i am just replacing the last transaction with one that has a higher fee and i can arbitrarily change the data i don't have to replace uh, the one i can replace the address from or the send from a to b to uh with one from a to c because if it's not in a block nothing is settled so i can add multiple addresses i can you know add a lightning channel to it i'm not dedicated to the unconfirmed transaction details that i broadcast like you know why should i be like having no confirmations is an unsettled transaction but a couple of the articles i read said that this is like a fundamental flaw in replace by fee there's tons of fud and um it just oh god just the replace by fee got just attacked in the most absurd way for a couple of years during the block size wars. It was just a reason to hate on Bitcoin core. It was just it was one of those things that, you know, like if you decide uh, team A is the bad guy, anything that team A does is bad. Um, and so there's no way to actually address it on its own merits or any of the actual dynamics. And this is where you lead to thinking that a trusted solution like RBF is a trusted solution like it, it's a it's a mimble solution again it's not part of the consensus rules um it's just a client side choice um so it's literally totally arbitrary and uh in it's a formalization of something that's always been possible on bitcoin is that if you broadcast broadcast out a transaction that goes from a to b with a you know penny fee and then i broadcast out the same transaction from a to c as a double spend with a $10 transaction, or excuse me, $10 fee, um, well then the miner is gonna grab the $10 one. And like, it's stupid, there's no reason to put in a layer of trust that says the miner has to agree in some public forum or put a flag on their client or whatever that says that I'm only gonna take the one penny transaction. Um, like it's, it's just not, again, that's not a trust minimized way to solve the problem. And Bitcoin already solves the problem. So long story short is uh, replaced by fee wasn't even used in, uh, in this instance. Uh, they just broadcast out two conflicting transactions uh, to, I guess, two different locations in the network. Um, and BitMEX, BitMEX Research, even though I got to say the wording on their uh, website was a little awkward um, and they should probably change it because I, I got a little bit nervous at first because I was like, wait, what? Because it sounded like they were saying there is a double spend confirmed on the blockchain. 
But after a, a simple, simple investigation, it was very clear that this was just a one block reorg and somebody broadcasted two separate transactions. So that's a little bit about how Bitcoin works. Um, now let's get into Wittgenstein's money. Uh, before God, there's such such a good piece. I love this piece. Uh, another massive applause to Alan for this. I love this perspective. Um, and uh, really quick, though, let's hit our sponsor. And uh, I'm going to get some water and we will be right back. So every single exchange in Bitcoin uses the same model, right? They use transaction fees. Level.co believes that the future of Bitcoin is free. They are creating a game-changing service. So they are bringing Bitcoin banking to the U.S. with direct deposits, checks, uh, wire transfers, a debit card, and zero conversion fees. Their profit model is simply to charge a flat rate of $3 for withdrawals, and uh, which actually includes the network fee, uh, and then $5 for same-day bank transfers and wires. And then, of course, they offer additional benefits like a private banker, a world debit card, and autopilot trading for anyone who spends just $9 a month. You have got to check these guys out if you are in a state that they are available in. They're in 28 so far. And then please come tell me about it so that you can make me jealous. Um, Level.co, LVL.co, you got to check it out. All right, now on to Ludwig Wittgenstein's, uh, uh, Wittgenstein's Money by Alan. Uh, so one of the, the best things about this perspective is that it shows how flawed the semantic argument of Bitcoin isn't money is. Like the idea that it can't be a store of value because it's volatile, it's uh, not used as a unit of account, and it's not a widely accepted medium of exchange. Like that, beget, that, that begs the whole question is how do you become those things? What is the process from zero to a unit of account, a medium of exchange, and a store of value? What does that look like? Like that's the whole perspective of this article is that it's, and I love the way he put it, it's the most static possible argument that ever was. And he had a great analogy that I think I mentioned in uh, yesterday's reader at the very end, if I'm not mistaken, but it was just such a good analogy to explain. And I've talked about it many times on this show that we've never seen a monetization event. This is something that happens on the order of, hundred year, multi-hundred year timeframes. So we've, we don't have any examples of a good being monetized to work from. Like this is not an area of study where every single, you know, every five or six years we have another example. Um, and his, his analogy that I just thought was so great, uh, this is a quote, is imagine if all respectable business knowledge had been derived from studying large established companies because there had never been a startup in living memory. If a startup then came along, people might well say, that's not a business because it doesn't make a profit, or that's not a business because it doesn't have a defined business plan. Those are literally, like, that's, that's such a perfect allegory to uh, those same arguments against Bitcoin, is that it's, it's not yet a unit of account. It's not a medium of exchange. It's volatile. Therefore, it can't be any of those things. And it's specifically because we haven't seen the monetization of a good for, I don't know, 
500, 600, if a thousand years, I, I, I don't even know how far back you have to go to really see some sort of a event like that. Um, probably actually you could liken it to a new commodity. Probably the best thing to compare it to in um, quote unquote recent history would be the discovery of oil and the use of petroleum in the late 1800s during the industrialization of America. This is a brand new commodity that was at first completely valueless. In, in fact, it had a largely negative value. You know, if I had farmland and then, you know, out of the middle of the farmland, you know, growing a bunch of corn or something, and out of the middle of the farmland, suddenly oil is spewing out of the ground, uh, I now sell my land at 10% of the cost. Um, because I bought it thinking it was good to grow food, and now it's crap at growing food, and there is no market for oil. There's no, there are no uses for petroleum. Kerosene isn't developed. The refining process, we don't know anything about it. It's just, it's just stuff that kills my crops. That's all it is. So I am, I have just lost all of my money. Um, and uh, and then over the period of, uh, you know, whale oil was the quote unquote oil of the day. But that was becoming increasingly scarce because we were so dependent on that as a fuel and whales are very slow to reproduce and the, they over, over hunted the crap out of the almost to extinction. And as the market started to dry up and prices soared and, uh, you know, the pressure was on to find a, an alternative, well then, here along comes petroleum. And over, I think it was 30 years... 40 years or so, like if you, if you look at those old charts, I haven't looked at it in a while, um, but uh, uh, you see this crazy volatile, like this growth phase of figuring out what you can do with this thing, uh, uh, getting kerosene out of it and the development of, you know, gasoline, all this, like this, the, the recognition and the, the explosion of innovation around using this as a fuel and for other, other things, you know, even, you know, eventually plastics and all of this, all of these things that we use petroleum for now. Now, that was not a money, like that's not a, that was not a quote unquote monetization, but it was the discovery of a new commodity of enormous value of a phenomenally large addressable market because it was energy, right? It was the, it was the adoption of an entirely new energy source for the, the dominant energy source of the world. So honestly, like in my opinion, that's probably the closest thing. Maybe there's another example that I'm not thinking of, but that's probably the closest thing we can do for looking at market maturity, infrastructure build out, even though it is a, a very different uh, type of market. I think there's probably a lot of good lessons to be drawn from that. Uh, but again, you're going back 150 years, right? In the context of money, like really money, we have no examples of this. So Alan's analogy here is just perfect, is that we have no idea what a startup looks like in this context, in the context of money. So all of our vague static definitions or arguments are about what happens after something becomes money, assuming as if there is, there is, it leaves, as he says in the article, is that there, it leaves absolutely no opportunity to explain the most interesting thing about money or to get any insight about the most fascinating thing about money is change, the element of change. What does it mean to have multiple monies competing? What does it mean and how do we assess when it shifts from one money to another money? How do you explicitly compare two competing monies 
And what does it look like? Or what does it seem like if it seemed like a new money was emerging on the market? And this is just a really difficult concept to get across. You know, this is this goes back to uh, one of the recent reads we did. Um, oh, what is water one? The oh man, what was that article called? Oh wait, no, no, that was the that was the Stone Ridge. That was the Stone Ridge letter. He started off with the what is water analogy um, and uh, or question, and that's that's really that's really it. You know. Um, is that we don't have anything, it, money is so ubiquitous in our lives that we've never stopped to ask what it is, what it's like, like it, what the market for money looks like, what it means for something to be monetized. It's just, it happens on such a grand external, like giant picture scale. It's just something we know nothing about. It's like a fish and they're at like, and they just have no idea the concept of water is completely unknown to them. It's so ubiquitous that there's no reason or even way to truly observe water. Now, another thing that Alan does so good in this article, um, I've highlighted so much crap in this piece, um, but another thing that he does really great uh, is the analogy about, and I actually think he's a little bit wrong on this point, which is funny, um, is that uh, talks about why money is useful, and this is such a great explanation to, to uh, really, like it's so hard to, like all, all I can tend to say when I say money is incredibly efficient and it adds um, enormous value to have one money versus many monies or to have money versus a barter economy, but it's so hard to imagine why it is and just what the magnitude of the difference is between a barter economy and a money economy. What, is, what does that mean? But then you realize when you use this thought experiment that uh, Alan does in this piece about having the superpower that you know what everybody else wants at all times across the entire world at today and forever into the future and you know how much they value it. That to even have that knowledge, it is still more efficient to simply have money. Money is more valuable than that superpower in the terms of the overall economy. You know, and its example is that Alice, you know, knows that, uh, you know, Quentin wants zebras or that Bob wants apples or something like that. And so Alice can always know when it is that they need to trade and who they need to trade for to uh, make sure that they get the best price and the best value from their zebras, and then they can get the shoes that allow them to get the, the quiches that lets them get the apples. Um, and even having that knowledge, they still aren't able to just trade zebras for apples at the end of the day. It still requires this elaborate, you know, Legend of Zelda video game ridiculous, I got to get the jug and then fill it up with the milk and then take it to the dude to get the egg and blah, 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 uh, just to solve one tiny little problem. Yet money does that naturally. That is why money emerges. But it's actually better than, uh, and I'll, I guess I'll actually read this quote. Um, so uh, now he says, quote, now imagine that everybody had this same superpower. Everybody knew what everybody else valued at every time. Now would you need money? Let's ring up Alice and find out. You go to Alice with your zebras to get some apples. 
Does it matter that Alice doesn't want zebras? I don't think it does anymore because Alice now has the superpower too. If she doesn't want zebras herself, she knows that Quentin, uh, wait, I'm a little off the page. Quentin does. If she wants Quentin's quiches, perfect. If not, if she really wants Peter's pies, then luckily Peter also knows that Quentin wants zebras. If he wants Quentin's quiches, perfect. If not, what happens is that the previously inconvenient highest value trading loop doesn't now need to be executed. It merely needs to exist at all in order for everybody to establish the relevant exchange rate between whatever they have and are trying to buy or whatever they want and are trying to sell. This knowledge would make money moot. End quote. Except that it would not. So he's absolutely right that it would allow everybody to value those bartered goods independently and know where exactly they could offload them. So essentially every money could, I mean, excuse me, every good could in a sense be a form of money um, or feel like a form of money because, you know, uh, if uh, Quentin wanted to get rid of the zebras, uh, they would know that Peter knew where to get rid of the zebras in order to get the pies. But this still does not make money moot because, believe it or not, it actually lends to why there is a, it, it's only one or I guess two aspects of money that are covered there. And there are still like three that are missing, three critical elements of money that are missing from this analogy that the superpower of everybody understanding what everybody wants at every time still does not make up for the efficiency and added productivity of money as a tool for communication. Durability and saleability across space in, in particular. So it's not merely that we need to align Alice's, Quentin's, and Peter's wants together so that they can all know when and how to trade with whom, but it's also about keeping those things until they are desired or until you can transfer that value um, uh, or, or trade that value at its peak need, um, when it's needed. You know, maybe Quentin doesn't need zebras for three months. Um, and then at the exact same time, you're also talking about the problem of transferring that value over long distances. That's the saleability across space. So why is it that even though somebody knows where to offload their zebras or who wants their pies and their quiches, why is it that you would still have money arise from this situation? Well, because you have to keep these things until they are desired. You have to feed a zebra. You have to maintain at enormous costs until it just so happens to align with Bob's desire to get a zebra. And if you know you can't afford to take, take on that cost, well, you need to trade it for Quentin's quiches in the meantime because, you know, it's more optimal than taking care of a damn zebra. But then you got to wait till Peter cooks his pies and quiches are literally only good for like a few hours. Then those shits are going to be stale and Peter does not want to trade his fresh pies with your reheated leftover quiches. So what do you do? Well, you know, maybe you go out and get some jewelry from Janet because she wants the quiches right now. And that's the only way you could dump your zebra liability is to get the quiches. But look where we are. We are dangerously back to having a money because the monetary metals are a great place to keep the value in the interim that after 30 days, it's still the same good. Whereas a zebra is 30 days older, 30 days more costly, and a quiche is a moldy pile of shit. So this is much better than both zebras, quiches, uh, pies, all of the examples he gave in these things. But even that doesn't solve the problem because what if you want to buy a relationship? 
a contract, uh, insurance, like relationship in like a business relationship. Uh, you want to buy software or any of the billions of abstract services rather than some physical good. Or maybe you want a physical good delivered to you. Well, it's really fucking hard to send a quiche over the internet. Feeding it through your fax machine doesn't really solve the problem. You need a monetary instrument that you can send over a communications line, either a second layer money uh, in the instance of like a debt or an IOU or a, um, a, a, a monetary substitute, or you need a digital money. So literally, even in the context of everybody in the world having the superpower of knowing all future events, knowing all future value and everybody who would value anything at any particular time, the society would still develop money because money makes it more efficient even with that superpower. Then there is the problem of pricing. So it's not merely that you know who wants what at any given time, but we also know how, need, need to know how to weigh these things against each other, how many quiches a zebra is worth. Um, and therefore, we need an exchange price between zebras and quiches. A, uh, we need an exchange price between quiches and pies. And then zebras and, uh, you know, uh, uh, insurance contract and on and on and on. We would need massive liquid markets for every possible combination of good in order to know how to uh, break down into small pieces uh, and engage in that trade, even if we know who is valuing it and when at any point in time. Otherwise, the only thing I can do with, like, I can't, you know, I can't sell a 20th of my zebra. You know, I need to, if I have to, uh, uh, if I have to, um, so divisibility, divisibility is, is key to the pricing mechanism, right? To having it as a unit of account. Um, and so what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to sell my zebra for 387 quiches. And what the hell am I going to do with the quiches? Now I need uh, now I need some crate that carries 300 quiches without destroying them all. And again, I've got like an hour to offload those things before they're stale and gross. So anyway, this elaborate analogy is just such a brilliant way to realize how powerful the tool of money is. That essentially to have omniscience, to know for everyone in the economy to be omniscient about the value of anything today and into the future and how everybody else values it, we would still end up with a money because the money is superior to that omniscient superpower. A world with money is more productive and can communicate better than a world in which everyone is omniscient and it doesn't have money. Just let that sink in. And my other favorite thing about this article is, uh, is the whole section he goes into about uncertainty. That at the end of the day, obviously nobody has this superpower. In fact, um, nobody has even remotely close to the beginnings of this superpower. And the best we can do um, is we know that our friends might want something, people we know very well and who are extremely close to us, and... Uh, events that are extremely close to us in time, we can kind of have a vague idea of what those things might be. But we're very, very often wrong about all of those things as well. I can very easily think that my friend might really value something and then go to them and find out that, nah, they don't really care that much. You know, that was just, 
I just was really intense about it in that one conversation, and I don't actually want one. When I got skin in the game, uh, it's not really all that important to me. Or, of course, I think tomorrow is going to be a great day and have lots of opportunity, and instead it rains out of nowhere, or I get a flat tire, or God knows what. Like, the idea that we could know anything about the future, even 10 minutes from now, is really kind of comical. Um, like, we just don't. Uh, we have no idea, and we can only have the absolute lowest of assurances of just take looking at history and being like, well, it didn't, you know, lightning didn't strike me 10 minutes ago, so maybe I'm not very likely to be struck by lightning in 10 minutes. But that's not exactly predictive power <laughs> to speak of. Now, his whole, he goes from basically this, like, like getting into uncertainty and the idea of what money does and, and just the very nature of asking the question of what does it mean to store value. Um, and this is such a fun... Uh, he just, I mean, he just absolutely demolishes this whole context of thinking. Like, re like retain purchasing power relative to what? Because all goods are relative to each other. So if I want to buy good A, like maybe, maybe I'm asking like how much is my purchasing power in relation to Nintendo 64s? Maybe I can buy less Nintendo 64s because people stopped making Nintendo 64s. Now they're scarce. Um, or I have to make it myself. They've been replaced by something newer or updated in the economy, and I still just want a Nintendo 64, right? Some of those old games are actually expensive on like eBay because they're hard to come by. They All they do now is break. They don't make any more of them. They're, they just keep getting scarcer over time. And I still love to play Super Smash Bros. and some Mario 64 on my Nintendo 64. If my Nintendo 64 broke, I'd like to break it out every once in a while when my, me and my friends get together on like a holiday or something like that. I would be sad. I'd be trying to get another Nintendo 64. So did I lose purchasing power? Is my money less valuable in relation to Nintendo 64s or any other good? You know, I, maybe I want a cotton gin. Cotton gins are hard to come by. Like a straight, like old-timey, manual cotton gin. Uh, you can still get them. They're actually still available, but they're really expensive because you got to hand make that crap. Anyway, you get, we get that example. Um, and then the other, uh, the other thing is, it has it stored value if there's a natural disaster? Um, and this is another great way to think about it, is that um, if, uh, and this is what I talk about, like the point of prices is to be accurate, not to be stable. Like stability in prices for the sake of stability is absolutely nonsense. Not only is it stupid, but it's incredibly destructive because it means our behaviors don't change in response to real changes in circumstances or um, uh, conditions like the reality of the economic network. And he talks about this. So like I gave an example in uh, Bitcoin in the printing press and the guys take after that, I talked about uh, prices are gauges, right? So we're in a plane and our gauge is telling this telling us that, oh my God, we, I pushed the joystick down and now we're, you know, flying towards the ground. Um, so my gauge is telling me, let's say we're in like a giant fog. Um, and uh, probably a great example of this actually is the triangle game that Alan refers to here is that we can't know anything about the other situation. So we're flying only by our instruments because all we can see is two feet in front of the plane, right? In the same way in the triangle game, we just have no idea what, uh, how to predict or make any notice or make any metric or measure of who is, you know, 20 feet away from us or 50 feet away from us in this, in this game. Any tiny little movement on my part is going to have 
incredible ripples effect, ripple effects, and there's never actually any equilibrium. Like, like it doesn't ever end because we don't know who's picking who. And maybe if you compare it to an actual economy, people are constantly changing, you know, quote unquote, who they're making their triangle with. It's, it's a, that was such a good analogy on the, the incredible complexity and uh, showing that an economy is a process, not a static thing. It is an ever-moving, ever-changing thing, and prices are simply a natural emergence of that incredibly complex, always dynamic, never static process. But back to the plain analogy is that our gauge, you know, like we, so we're in the fog, right? We can't see anything. We can't see the ground. We can't see the sky. We're blind. And our gauges are telling us that we're flying down. So we're like, well, shit, we're eventually going to hit the ground. We're eventually all going to die. So I need to pull up the plane. Now, that might be very aggressive. You know, it might throw everybody back in their seats. It might make people sick. But that's what we need to do so that we don't die. And uh, the, to get stability, quote unquote, stability for the sake of stability when we're talking about prices is to break the glass and just push the gauge up so that Nobody gets thrown off balance. Nobody gets sick on their stomach. Um, and that's like, oh, it's great. Stability. Because what we want is for the altitude to be stable, right? Like, that's what we want. But we want it to mean that it's because the, the plane is flying straight and it's not going to crash. Stability for the sake of stability is moving the gauge. Stability in the sense of reality is flying horizontally to the ground. The gauge tells us what's happening, tells us, informs us of something in reality. It is not the thing to correct. The plane is the thing to correct. The economy and productivity and supply and capital goods and human energy and human labor, that is the thing to correct. The prices are telling us how to correct it. So in the context of storing value, if there's a freaking nuclear bomb or a giant natural disaster that wipes out half the capital goods across the world, well then, yeah, we should not retain purchasing power. The money should not be a store of value in the flat amount of goods it can buy because there are less goods. There are now half as many capital goods. Our productive uh, labor and energy now goes half as far. So whatever we had uh, in purchasing power or storing value is now halved. So did the money store value? My God, it's so volatile. How could any money like that exist or continue? And that's where he just does such a good job of hitting what the point of the store of value concept, or in the context of money, what does that mean? And it's about having a stable proportion, a proportion of the economic network, and having continually that proportion, whether the economic network grows or declines, that you have that proportion of value, which means that uh, relative to the overall, the number of capital goods, that is the, the, the value or the promise of a money. A stable money is one that gives you an accurate proportion of the economic network. And if in the case of something like Bitcoin, you have a guaranteed proportion, you know exactly how many monetary units there is or there are, and uh, at the exact same time, the size of the economic network is growing uh, vastly, is growing at an extraordinary rate. Well, then your proportion gives you a lot more purchasing power. 
But if the value of that economic network declines, if a bunch of people exit that economic network um, with their human capital, their energy, their productivity, their savings, blah, 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 well, then it falls. Like, that's just, that's the nature of a money and its economic network. Which brings us back to the question, if this is about uncertainty, are we able to take on, and this was another great way it was framed, uh, Alan framed it in this article, is uh, if there is a money that is better at promising the long-term proportion of the economic network, will we take short-term uncertainty for a longer-term certainty? Whereas in the reverse context of like a fiat money, in the long term, we're, a, we're certain about nothing. But in the short term, we have, you know, a high degree of certainty. Like I can pretty much know that tomorrow everybody at the gas station and my grocery store is still going to accept dollars um, and roughly for the same amount. But in the long term, I have no idea. I don't know how much Biden or Trump is going to print into existence. I don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do. 2020, if 2020 was a demonstration of anything, it's that they have an infinite machine that just prints money as, as whenever they feel like they need it. It is the least stable, least predictable thing that we could possibly uh, hinge the promise of uh, monetary stability onto. And then their actual mandate, their very mandate is to make prices stable. It's to correct the gauge even if the plane is flying into the ground. So it's a bad idea all around. And if, if Bitcoin can correct that, well, then I can easily look out 10 years and be like, well, Bitcoin is a much better bet. I, there is extreme certainty when I look out on a 10-year time frame, uh, even though there is high uncertainty today. But I'm fully aware of that. If, if, you know, I'm, uh, if I'm aware of the dynamic there, well, I'm happy. I am happy to take the volatility. I am happy to have the, you know, be in the bear market of 2021. Dear Gigi had a hilarious tweet, says, I survived the bear market of 2021, ask me anything. Um, of this tiny little dip that we've seen from 40 to now 33. I really, God, I really hope we go lower. And I don't mean to wish that on anybody who just wants to see us go to the moon. Um, but uh, this is not much of a dip. And uh, I would really like the opportunity, but you know, we'll see. But anyway, this is, this is the underlying question when there are two monies competing, is what is the long-term promise of you know, the proportion of the economic network that you, you are certain of? And maybe that's widely misunderstood. Maybe that knowledge is extremely rare. But for those who do have that knowledge, there's a massive asymmetrical bet to, to be had um, because we can, we can anticipate that eventually people will learn it because the nature of a money that even has static demand but a falling inflation rate, um, it, the prices number go up, right? Like that's, that's the quote-unquote technology. In comparison to fiat, even with static demand, all it can do is go up because it's relative to a good whose supply is increasing at a ridiculous, unpredictable, uncertain rate. Crap, I've already gone on for 30 minutes here. Um, there's so much to unpack in this piece. Um, I really wish I could commit. I could probably just go on about this one for two hours. But there's a, there's a really great part in this, uh, closer to the end, um, uh, just about how the whole idea of this is in the store of 
human time and energy. Like that's the underlying, uh, that's the other, the real underlying value of this thing. And that, like I said, it's proportional to the economic network that you are, uh, you are a part of, or that the money is using. Um, but there's a great quote here about what the value of money is, like what that potential, um, uh, the benefit or the efficiency gain in money is uh, from the from the overall economy, and this this also lends to trying to imagine what that value is when you think about a, a world where everybody has that superpower of everybody knows everybody what everybody else's else values at any point in time, forever and into the future. But the the value he tries to give another way to understand the value of money, and in doing so, he goes into the example of uh, whatever your, uh, however the much, however much the value of money is, is in the difference for all the goods that you buy. Um, it's in the difference from making the device or the good or product or service yourself versus getting it by money from someone else versus trading for it. Um, and you apply this scope to literally, you apply that metric to literally everything that you are trying to, or that you desire, or that you want to get your hands on. So the quote is, quote, the difference between however you value this presumably enormous amount of time and energy and the cost you actually pay for the inputs is exactly the value created by money intermediating a much more specialized series of exchanges, end quote. So something I've brought up multiple times in the past on this show, but it's been many, many episodes now, um, is there is a TED Talk of a guy who tries to make a toaster from scratch. Like, rather than having all of the uh, inputs, or excuse me, rather than like going out and like to the store and just buying it, he uh, assumes he has no tools and nothing at all, and he just tries to figure out how to make a toaster from absolute scratch, what goods he can, what, uh, what materials he needs, where he needs to get them. And it is one of the most fascinating things uh, uh, to understand what it is that money enables him to do, the shortcut that he is enabled, um, that is enabled by the fact that he can just go to the store for like 15 or 20 bucks and buy a working toaster that will toast his food or his bagels or his bread, whatever it is, for years and work perfectly fine. Whereas his only alternative is to figure out how to get the raw materials, figure out how to create a burner, figure out electrical engineering and how to, uh, you know, he, even, even what he did is such an overwhelming shortcut because he can just look online for the answers to all of these questions. He doesn't have to figure it out himself. The actual process of making it from scratch is figuring out the engineering, the physics, how to heat, uh, uh, how to heat metal from electricity, um, how to uh, how to get plastic. You have to go mine oil. You have to go mine the ores, the steel or the aluminum or whatever it is. You have to make and refine uh, plastic from petroleum. You have to figure out how to literally create a wire. Um, and figure out how to make rubber. Uh, I mean, just the, the list of things is staggering. That is the actual output. Or excuse me, those are the actual inputs. Decades, years, centuries of study. Uh, uh, hundreds, thousands of different 
like micro inputs, um, uh, goods from all over the world, raw materials that you have to blow up out, out the side of a mountain or dig hundreds of feet into the ground just to find knowledge from some of the greatest minds in history. The very design and spring and mechanism by which you stick something in, in between the heated plates to actually toast it. Like, you'd have to think it up. You know, the what looks like an arduous, insane process that he even did with this is a massive shortcut. Like, it, it's like a 500-year shortcut that he took, and it was still an utter disaster. It's hilarious, the actual toaster that he made and I highly encourage you go look at it because it is it's hilarious he had to fly all over the world he had to do all these things he had to carve he tried to carve the actual shape of a, he had to carve an actual shape of a toaster out of like a tree stump and he even cheated that way too so not only did he get the shortcut of all the knowledge and the science and the mechanism by which to do all of this through uh the economy already propagating that information via capital um, but, uh, he also used like hammer and chisel and a crowbar. Like it's literally, it's still, no matter what you do, you still can't completely build it from scratch. And, uh, and apparently it toasted for like five seconds before the, the element, <laughs> the element melted. And it took him literally thousands of dollars, uh, just in, just in going and finding all of these resources and talking to people to figure all of this out. Um, uh, to make this horrible disaster of a toaster. Um, and it's really funny, but it's also really eye-opening because as he says um, in this, like back to the quote, the difference, again, we're, think about the toaster, the difference between however you value this presumably enormous amount of time and energy and the cost you actually pay for the inputs. So the thousands of dollars spent going to the different locations, getting the knowledge, Chip, like chiseling out a freaking tree stump to try to mimic the shape of a toaster, um, getting the iron ore, um, uh, refining and making the plastic, uh, creating the element, making the wire, um, uh, finding the metal. I mean, just over and over, just the, the vast amount of, like you could spend your whole life doing this really from scratch. That's the cost of the time and energy and the inputs of legitimately making a toaster. The difference between all of that cost and what you actually have to pay for, that is the value created by money intermediating a much more specialized series of exchanges. The difference between all of that enormous human time, energy, and cost and all of those inputs that you would have to figure out in making that good yourself versus driving real quick to Target and buying it for 15 bucks, that is the value of money for just that one good. Then apply this to every single thing you buy. In, a tr in one trip to the grocery store, money has removed hundreds of years of lives and energy and cost and inputs to get you a grocery cart full of stuff that you don't have to make yourself. That is the power and value of money, and it is absolutely unparalleled in the world. There is no other good that provides so much efficiency, productivity, and value to us 
in our day-to-day lives. And that is just incredibly misunderstood uh, because it's so ubiquitous, because it is so everywhere that we take it completely for granted. But it is literally a miracle. And the difference, and then to be put in the monetization of a new good, a good that can do that orders of magnitude better than the fiat tool we are stuck with right now, that is a, that is a, that's a bet that you don't want to be on the wrong side of. But with that, I don't think I, uh, there's still hundreds of things I could say about this article. I love it. Huge thank you to Alan Farrington for this. Um, and uh, uh, just, just an all-around great piece. If you didn't listen to it, you got to go back. Listen to it again now, thinking about the way some of these things are framed. Uh, another thing he linked to in that piece was iPencil by uh, Leonard Reed, which we have covered on the show. I will put that in the show notes, um, as well as the TED Talk about making a toaster from scratch. It's only like 11 minutes, and it's both funny and will kind of blow your mind. Uh, iPencil is also really short. I think it's only like 10-minute 10, 10 read or something like that. Uh, if you haven't heard or seen either of those, you got to. They're, they're prerequisites to taking Bitcoin 101. Uh, so... I'll definitely check those out in the show notes. They will be on BitcoinAudible.com and uh, I'll put them underneath the tweet as well. Why not? Don't forget to follow Alan uh, at AlanF32 uh, his Twitter handle. And of course, uh, check out our awesome sponsors for the show. If you want a Bitbox hardware wallet, you want a secure, open source, um, easy to use hardware wallet, that's the Bitbox O2 and of course, if you're looking for Bitcoin mobile banking services and you want a debit card connected to your Bitcoin and you want no fee exchange between Bitcoin and dollars, that you got to do that with Level.co. They're both awesome services and sponsors of Bitcoin Audible. Check them out at GuySwan.com right at the top of the page. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is Bitcoin Audible and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got some awesome reads. Uh, some audio books, and uh, a couple of good guys' takes that I'm already working on coming soon. So subscribe, share this out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin space, as well as all of those friends who are just getting into Bitcoin and taking a peek down the rabbit hole. Send them to me. I'll, uh, I will not lead them astray. And until next time, guys, take it easy. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.